Good afternoon. We are continuing our Advent series uh, looking at the coming of the shepherd. Uh, This week we are going to be looking at the shepherds themselves, the ones uh, who were visited by the angel and the host of angels, the the heavenly host that's saying glory to God in the highest. And we're going to just look at the part leading up to them going to the manger, but we're not going to quite get there. We'll save that for next week. Uh, So we'll split this section up a little bit. We're just going to look at verses 8 to 14 of Luke chapter 2, Luke 2, 8 to 14. So with that, uh, you can follow along in your bulletins or your Bibles. Uh, We're going to be reading God's Word, Luke chapter 2, 8 to 14. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared, uh, appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, And lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, peace among those with whom he is pleased. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the angelic announcement of good news great joy. And Lord, even though this is familiar to us, we pray that you would um, cause us to leap once again in our hearts with joy at the news of your coming. You, the good shepherd. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In that beautiful shepherd's psalm that we've looked at a little bit here and there throughout the series, Psalm 23, uh, a psalm of great comfort and consolation, right at the very center of that psalm uh, is uh, that great longing. Uh, it, or, or, longing isn't the right word. It's that great realization that in the darkest, deepest place, the Good Shepherd is present with us. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Translators translate that death, but it could be also translated justly, even though I walk through the valley of the deepest darkness, I will fear no evil. Our text this afternoon, we, we see, is, uh, takes place at night on the hillside of Bethlehem. It's dark, and I think... That the, the, the gospel writer here, Luke, is, is highlighting, obviously, that piece of the story, that there's darkness. John picks up that piece as well, doesn't he, in, in, in his prologue, that, that there's darkness. And it's not just darkness because it's night, but there's a deep darkness that's over the whole land. But in the midst of that darkness, there is a declaration made by the angel that there is good news, a proclamation of good news with great joy, even in the midst of the darkness. 
And this is the good news, of course, that the shepherd has come to you. That is good news of great joy. This is great joy in the darkness. The shepherd has come for you, for you. So with that, I want to look at this idea of the shepherd coming, the goodness of that news, that proclamation uh, in four parts. The first section I want us to consider this, this afternoon is that I just want to focus a little bit on the darkness of the night, the darkness of the night. And I was thinking about darkness. There's lots of illustrations you could think about as a kid, being scared of the dark. Sometimes we're like that. But I remember as a kid, one of my favorite things to do, and maybe some of you kids have done this before, is in the summertime, we would play a game called sardines. Ever played a game called sardines? It's kind of like the opposite of hide and seek. So one person count, or one person hides, and everyone else counts together, and then they go off separately, and they look for the person who is hiding, and it's dark, and you play it outside, and it's one of those summertime games. And the goal is to find the person who is hit, who is hidden somewhere, and to hide with them without anybody else noticing. But what ends up happening over time is that people start disappearing. Your friends start disappearing. It's dark, it's late at night, you're a fairly young kid, and all of a sudden you find yourself, if you're one of the last, you find yourself alone, in the dark, outside, and all your friends have disappeared. Now, if you're the ones hiding, it's so fun, right? You're, you're watching this person walk around in the various places looking for you. But if you're the last one, you start to get nervous. And you start saying things like, okay, I give up, you win. And if your friends are really cruel, they'll just stay quiet even longer. And you start pleading with them to show themselves. Finally, you'll go and get a flashlight or you'll go and, and, and shine a light from the porch or whatever it is and you'll find them and they'll complain about your cheating. But the darkness is a scary place. I wonder what it was like for the shepherds that night out on the outskirts of Bethlehem. Yeah, they had each other. They weren't alone. And they were rough and ready. They were, they were not f- afraid of the dark, so to speak. They were the ones who were protectors in the midst of the dark. Uh, they were the ones who stood guard. They were the vigilant ones. Nevertheless, it was dark. And there they were out watching their sheep at night. The text says that they were watching, keeping watch over their flock. That language, keeping watch, is the language of guarding. It's the kind of language used back in the garden when Adam and Eve were told to to tend the garden and to keep it, meaning they were to guard it. They were to watch over it and make sure nothing happened in the garden that shouldn't. Unfortunately, it did. And they were kicked out of the garden. And that same word used after they were kicked out of the garden, was used for the cherubim with flaming swords who were keeping watch. They were guarding the garden. That was the role of these shepherds. They were guards. They were night watchmen, keeping out the predators, keeping away the robbers from stealing the sheep. But my question is, what do you think it was like for the sheep at night? Now, I realize sheep probably aren't thinking all that much. That's their nature. They don't think. Um, 
And that's part of the problem, right? In the darkness, they don't think. We don't think oftentimes in the darkness. But it was a dangerous place for the sheep. It was that time when predators would come by, when animals, which often predators are out in the wee hours of the morning or at night, and they're there trying to steal the sheep. Or robbers would come and take the sheep. It was a dangerous time. And so it's no coincidence, I don't think, that the angels visited the the, the shepherds at night. Why? Well, I think there's this motif that I've already been talking about of darkness that we see not just here in the Gospel of Luke, in the Gospel of John, but all throughout Scripture. John said in his prologue, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. John is picking up this picture from the prophet Isaiah, who would also talk in these ways. Isaiah describes us as a people who walk in darkness. The darkness that Israel faced, according to Isaiah, was like a thick darkness or a gloomy darkness. In fact, all throughout Scripture, this idea of darkness is used to describe the Paul, if you will, of sin and the fall and its effects. And it covers everything. You know, it's interesting that John, when he's describing the light that is the eternal word coming into the darkness, and this is what's happening here in the Gospel of Luke, the historical account of Jesus' being born, the light shining into the darkness, it says, and the darkness has not overcome it. And that's really interesting because that means the darkness overcomes just about everything else, if not everything else, right? There's nothing that isn't covered. On the one hand, I think we can identify ourselves with the shepherds. They're lowly. They have little to commend themselves to others. They're not of noble birth. They're not well healed. They're not very well respected. They're not trusted. And I'll come back to the shepherds in a minute, but I just want us to think more about this idea of being those sheep out on the hillside of Bethlehem. Their lives in danger, utterly helpless to protect themselves. And this is the nature of us under the pall of sin, under the, the fall and the curse and everything that attains, to, uh, uh, that, that is part of it. It is an all-consuming thing, and it's where the evil one prowls seeking to destroy. And here's the really bad thing about being a sheep in the dark, so to speak, that's us under this fall under this pall of sin, is that we actually start to get accustomed to it, don't we? Not only do we get accustomed to it, but I would say we actually somewhat enjoy it. We start to like it. We start to, to, to think it's our home. Sometimes in that game of sardines, uh, we would go inside the little garden, my, my mom's little garden shed up in Maine, and we would, very small, but we'd shove ourselves into this garden shed and we'd flick on the lights. Why would we do that? Well, because we wanted our eyes to not be accustomed to the dark because being accustomed to the dark 
kind of ruined the fun of the game. But as you went out, the darkness would eventually wear off and you could see better. You, could hide, you couldn't hide as well. And so we would put our eyes under that light and try to, try to re, reshape our eyes. But this is the thing about darkness and the darkness of sin. It is by its nature an overcoming and all-encompassing danger to us, even to the point that we begin to be accustomed and to enjoy it, no matter how destructive it is in our life. That's why the sheep desperately need the shepherd. It would be no good for the shepherds to go into town and sleep in their homes while the sheep wandered the hillsides in the darkness. We desperately need the shepherd to come to us in the night. It is the only thing that can bring light, that can shed light into the darkness, into the gloom, and cast it aside. We need the good shepherd to come and watch over us and protect us and to guard us. But the emphasis in our text is on the relationship, not primarily of these Bethlehem shepherds to their sheep, but of this glorious visitation of the angel to the shepherds. And this is my my second idea. I wanted us to think a little bit about the darkness, but now I want us to consider the glory of the shepherd, the glory of the shepherd. Now, you'll notice I didn't say the glory of the angels, right? Don't get me wrong, when the angel appears, there's lots of glory. The glory is surrounding, it says, the, the shepherds. But did you notice whose glory it was? The glory of the angel? It says, the glory of the Lord shone around them. Now, there, of course, it was attending to the angel and their visitation, but it was a glory that was not inherent to the angel. The angel, just like you and I, are reflectors of God's glory, but they themselves don't have the glory in and of themselves. They come with God's glory, with the glory of the Lord, the glory of the throne room of heaven. Now, before I go any farther in thinking about this idea of the glory of the, the shepherd, um, the good shepherd, uh, I want us to consider what, what we mean by glory. I've said this in the past, but glory in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, carries with it the sense of weightiness, heaviness. So when the glory fills the temple at the end of Exodus, it pushes everything out. Nothing can enter it. It is that sense that is full and weighty and magnificent and majestic. There is this sense of awe and wonder and fullness. But in the New Testament, the word for glory carries with it the sense of brilliance or radiance or light. We get both of these ideas together in Scripture. Weightiness and brightness. So when God manifests himself in physical ways, whether in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, he is these two things, these two physical manifestations of God's presence, the, the terrifying glory cloud and the weightiness of it, or the brightness of the transfigured Lord, these different visitations, if you will, reflect something spiritual in a physical way. This weighty brightness 
that causes great fear in all who behold it. That's, that's the picture that we get of the physical manifestation of glory in Scriptures. So here in the darkness of the night, the brightness of the Lord is shown about. It was the piercing light of heaven coming down into the darkness, and the darkness could not, would not overcome it. And it absolutely terrified the shepherds. Of course, would it not terrify you if an angel came out and said, fear not, and the, all, you know, the, the glory of the Lord was shining around, and you, you would be terrified. We all would be terrified. That would be the natural reaction to the glory of heaven coming down. And it's not terrifying primarily because of the manifestation of brightness or weightiness. Though those things, if you've ever been in a thunderstorm, there's a, there's a sense of awe and fear that comes with it. If you're caught in the middle of it and you have nowhere to hide, that's a, a fearful thing. And so there is a sense in which the physical side, the glory revealed physically, is awe-inspiring and fear-inducing. But that's not the primary reason. It is because God himself is shining out his glory, his beauty, his perfection. The messenger of the Lord is visiting these lowly shepherds. As a side note, this is, this is quite a remarkable thing, right? That the, the angel would visit shepherds on the outskirts of the least of the cities of Israel and Bethlehem, on the outskirts of Bethlehem. They were not likely candidates for the glory of the Lord to be manifest. Usually the glory of the Lord visited the temple. At the end of Exodus, the glory cloud, as I mentioned, fills the temple, the tabernacle. Uh, that was where we expect to see God present with his people over that space. It was the place of God's dwelling. But here and now, this glorious manifestation of the Lord visits the shepherds in Bethlehem, out in the wilderness, out on the outskirts. And they had every reason to be afraid. Why? Well, God is a holy, righteous God, full of splendor and power and might, and his glory was being manifest. Isaac mentions that God did not come as a consuming fire, but God is a consuming fire. Sin cannot dwell with him. And these shepherds, they had done no ceremonial preparations. They had not cleansed themselves in any way. They had not offered any of their sheep up as sacrifice. He came to them directly. No veils, no walls, nothing preventing the angel of the Lord from drawing near to these poor shepherds. <laughs> Even Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, when he met the angel, it was in the Holy of Holies, and he was a high priest. Not so these poor shepherds. They were out in the fields, the roughest and the lowliest of persons. But despite the reasonable fear of being consumed by the glory and destroyed by the angel, the angel, likely Gabriel, says, 
what the angels always say when they come with good news, when they come visiting. They said, do not be afraid. Fear not. And here's the profound mystery. This glory of God does not consume us. God comes in the person of Jesus Christ. He comes to earth and we are not consumed. And this is beyond our comprehension. He has every right. And not just does he have the right in the sense that, you know, sometimes we have a right to do something, but we can choose not to exercise that right. God not only has the right to consume us, in a sense, he must consume and judge all peoples on account of sin. Because that darkness that we talked about in the previous point is not something done to us against our will. It is of our own making. It is on account of our rebellion against God. The darkness was the veil that we crawled under to hide ourselves. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, who, when God came to visit them after they took the, the tree of the knowledge of the fruit of the knowledge the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, he goes, they go and they hide themselves. And God comes in visitation. And it would have been right and just and appropriate for God at that very moment to strike Adam and Eve down. No questions asked. They had rebelled. They had sinned. They had done the very thing that God had told them not to do, knowing that their life was forfeit. But this is the profound mystery. He visited those shepherds just as he visited Adam and Eve in that garden after they sinned, and he did not consume them. Did not consume these poor shepherds. And rather than consume us, he comes to us to shepherd us to cast that glorious light of his, of his presence into the darkness and to take that gloom and push it out of our hearts and of our lives. He comes to protect us. He comes to love us. And so the angel declares to these poor shepherds, do not be afraid. And this is a profound Mystery that the, the visitation of God is not for us to be consumed in his wrath, but his visitation to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ is for our salvation. And that is a mystery. And the reason they need not fear is because of this good news for all people. The gospel, this is the third point, gospel of the shepherd, the good news of the shepherd. There's no greater news than the birth of Jesus. <laughs> well, maybe his death and resurrection all put it together though, right? It's all of the same stuff. His birth, his life, 
his death, his resurrection, his coming again to bring us home, all of that packed into this idea that God saves, that he's come to save us from our sins. There's no greater news than the birth of the good shepherd. And it's a jam-packed message that I want to tease out just a bit when the angel comes. First, it's good news of great joy. And I'm going to come back to this at my final conclusion and thought. I want us to consider what it means that it's great joy for us. So I'll just save that and tuck it away. But that's the first thing we note here uh, in this jam-packed pronouncement by the angel. Second, it's for all people. I don't think this was lost on the shepherds. Like As the angel comes to them and says, I have good news for all people, they're thinking, you mean us? Right? They knew their place in society. They weren't even trusted to give testimony in a court case. They were often unclean because of the very job that they held. They did the dirty work so others might have those sacrificial lambs that they could take to the temple. But here the angel is saying and showing by their presence that this is good news even for dirty shepherds. And it's good news for all stripes of broken sinners like you and me. Last night, my family watched that classic um, uh, Christmas story, the best Christmas pageant ever. It's a little cheesy, but I like it. It's good. Uh, You know, it hits this particular truth home, right? That the good news is for all people. If you don't know the story, it's a book that was made into a movie in the 80s. Uh, And the book opens with a description of these kids who basically live on their own. Uh, Father abandoned them. Mother works all the time. They are rough kids. This is the description at the very beginning of the book. It says, the Herdmans were absolutely the worst kids in the history of the world. They lied and stole and smoked cigars, even the girls, and talked dirty and hit little kids and cussed their teachers and took the name of the Lord in vain and set fire to Fred Shoemaker's old broken-down toolhouse. These were, <laughs> these were the kind of kids you avoided when you were in school at all costs. Later on, the, the, so the main narrator is this girl, and her little brother uh, says this during a Sunday school class. The Sunday school teacher asks, asks them, okay, what's your favorite part of Sunday school, right? We all love Sunday school. We miss it so much. But the, they ask the question, and this little boy, Charlie, he says, what I like best about Sunday school is that there aren't any Herdmans here. There's a, there's, a, there's a class of people that we just don't want anything to do with. Keep them out. Well, you can imagine how the story ends, because it's a Christmas story. It ends with the Herdmans being a part of that pageant, despite their messiness, despite their brokenness. It may be a bit of a sentimental story, but it portrays that profoundly good news that the shepherd comes for all people. The shepherd comes for you, and the shepherd comes for me. Third thing in this packed proclamation is the shepherd comes to the city of David, Bethlehem. This, of course, was 
foretold by the prophet Micah. But he comes as the shepherd king, the greater David. David was the least among his brothers, shepherd of his father's sheep, fierce and fearless. He, he was a warrior, but before he was ever a warrior, he defended his sheep by killing the lion and the bear with his bare hands and with a little sling. David was raised up and became the king of God's people, the shepherd of those people. He led them and protected them, yet he himself was a sinner. He needed a shepherd. He failed in his own duties. And so this greater David, shepherd king, comes to us to keep watch over his flock. Read into that, to guard and protect and to love, to bind their wounds, to guide them, to rescue the wandering ones and to carry those lambs in his bosom. This is what the greater shepherd does for us. It's all fit into this little proclamation by the angel. Next thing that the angel says is that he is the savior. He comes to save to lay his life down for us. This is good news. The mystery of his glory being revealed to these shepherds is only possible because of the cross. That's how God can visit us to save us through the cross. What better news could there be in all the world? Finally, this little proclamation, two things. This proclamation says Christ is the Lord. He is the Christ, the Lord. He is God's only Son, the Lord of heaven and earth. And He's the only one who is able to deliver us and make us His own. And He comes, lastly, as a baby, wrapped in swaddling clothes. He was swaddled. I loved swaddling when I had little ones. I can't swaddle them anymore. Sometimes I want to tie them up. It's kind of similar. But I remember that, holding my children in my arms and tightening that down, giving them comfort. Why? Because it was a helpless child. And this is one of the most spectacular things. The Lord of glory, the one who is the very Son of God, came into earth like us with all our frailties, needing food, and comfort in his mother's arms. He comes to us with all the grief and sorrow and weakness that attend to being human, yet without sin. And because he identifies with us and enters this world like us, we have this good news full of great joy. And this is where I want to close. I'm going to just briefly conclude the joy of the coming of the shepherd. Joy is one of those words that's really difficult to define, isn't it? You know, I, I think sometimes we think of it as an elated emotion, the kind of emotion we have when the Patriots win the Super Bowl, or most of us have, or should have. Oh, come on. I moved back to New England. This is... And, and that is a joyful moment. That's full of joy and happiness. But that doesn't really get at joy, does it? The kind of joy that's speaking about here in Scripture. That's not quite 
what it is. It's a joyful moment, but this great joy is something larger, greater, deeper. It carries with it all the longing and sorrow that attends this life. Is that an interesting thing? The joy of heaven carries with it that grief, but not in the way that you think, not, not the bitterness that is part of this world, not the kind of sorrow that, that, that leads us to despair, but the kind of tears that remind us of the brokenness of this world and the brokenness of our hearts and the sin that we have, but of the greatness and wonder and majesty of a God who loves us, who died for us, who is our shepherd and who carries us in his bosom, in his arms, and who brings us home. It's full of hope. It's like the feeling of the most important victory won, though it costs many lives, right? It's like if you were a warrior and you went out to battle and you came back victorious and you had great relief and sense of wonder and happiness, but you were full of grief and sorrow because you know the costliness. It's all mixed up. This great joy because of this good news. Well, the angel couldn't help but burst out. And so, not only the angel, but the entire host of heaven comes down. It's hard to imagine. It's the army of heaven that comes alongside to be those shepherds in that moment and to hear the declaration that they make is too much for words. Glory to God in the highest. They glorified God because the shepherd king had come to lay his life down for these sheep. To lay his life down for you and me. Why? So that we might have peace with God. This is great joy. Mega joy. The Greek word there for great is just the word mega. It's, you know, you get megalopolis or whatever mega word you want to think. Mega man, for those of you who used to play that. Mega is the Greek word for great. It is an expansive, there's nothing beyond it. It is the superlative that says there's no joy greater than knowing that our Savior has come, that the shepherd king was born in Bethlehem, and that he came to lay down his life for you and me. What good news with great joy. Let's pray.